An important uh, thing to realize as a student of uh, knowledge is uh, one not only the importance of knowledge but also the adab and <clears throat> the modality by which that knowledge has been imparted to you by other students of knowledge and other uh, other teachers and trying to understand and recognizing that these uh, lessons are of different grades and of different qualities and therefore demand of the student different levels of interaction and different levels of responsibility in learning. Uh, so for example, in uh, regards to hadith, um, we can have lessons that uh, are just simply lessons of qira'ah and sama'ah. So uh, what I mean by that is just reading and listening. And in these lessons, the the teachers or the students, uh, they they simply read the hadith of the generally the primary texts like Bukhari and Muslim and Abu Dawud etc. And they're often termed makras. And the, the main purpose of these readings and these lessons is sanad preservation, uh, you know, correcting uh, uh, manuscripts or correcting the recitation, the pronunciation and being aware of certain nuances in the hadith. Very little commentary or explanation is given in these lessons with regards to the hadith or the sanads. And a lot of them uh, of these uh, lessons occur simply for barakah and to revive the love for hadith and, and, and these texts. Um, the second type of uh, lesson is that, that lesson in which simply a general advice is given and there's uh, anecdotal stories that are, uh, are, are given and, 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 and spoken about and encouragement and warnings. And it's a very relaxed affair in which a student of knowledge or a teacher may speak and the audience listens and tries to take heed of the message that is being given. Uh, and, you know, an example of this is, for example, the, uh, the, the Juma Khutbah. The third type uh, of learning or modality of learning is a specific lesson, a dars, a majlis that is established in which learning uh, is the main focus and in which the uh, teacher prepares for the lesson and therefore uh, transmits what they've learnt uh, from their teachers and their preparation and their research to the student. And so there's rights and responsibilities or that the teacher has, but also rights and responsibilities that the students have. And one of those rights that um, a student has is that the teacher prepares for the lesson and does their utmost to uh, impart that knowledge in a uh, in an honest in uh, with honesty, with integrity, uh, and being prepared uh, uh, and revising and researching the the matter at hand. Uh, and the responsibility of the students is to um, understand that information that is being imparted to them. If they don't understand, they interact with the teacher and ask questions. You know, half of ilm is being able to ask uh, important questions. 
uh, and uh, uh, that is uh, an important lesson for us that we learn to uh, ask questions that are astute to the point and applicable to what we're learning so that it increases our understanding um, and also that the student learns to record their information correctly and in a manner which is retrievable to them and that they also prepare for the lessons and revise the information that is being given to them because generally lessons are building blocks and if you do not go over the work of a previous lesson uh, then it's very difficult to build upon that knowledge that is that is being imparted to you by uh, your, your teacher uh, and so revision and revising and going over the work is also essential to to carry on that exposure to often what are difficult concepts that are presented in lessons so it's really important for students to grasp this uh, otherwise it's a, it's a fruitless exercise because the teaching and the learning of knowledge in this manner is not the be end and end all it's not the end goal the end goal is to be able to uh, move from the theory and learning into what I call an a, a practical or an actualization phase. So we have to be able to translate what we're learning and recording and be able to ponder over it, interpret it, rationalize it, but move to the most important stage, which is actualization, which is from theory to practice. And that is the real meaning of ilm, the ilm that which is beneficial, that we learn it, record it, ponder over it, and then we move into a phase by which we are able to act upon it with sincerity, and therefore it becomes something that is praiseworthy uh, and acceptable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in today's episode, I, I really want to uh, discuss the nub of uh, hadith and what the hadith sciences are trying to achieve. So what is the framework that kind of underpins hadith and what is it that we're trying to achieve? So another way of looking at this is to try and to understand how do we know what we know? Uh, uh, and the study of knowledge is called epistemology and there is an, an epistemological framework that underpins hadith and what we're trying ultimately to do in the hadith sciences is we're trying to establish knowledge we're trying to establish or reach the, a, a truth what is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from me what is it that pleases uh, our creator? And we're trying to achieve that truth um, through the, the medium of the Prophet wasallam, and therefore through his hadith, his reports. So the epistemological framework that underpins hadith is summarized as follow. And epistemology is just a, a very fancy philosophical word for the study of knowledge and how we know things. So how is it that we know things? So 
we know things by the perception of our senses. So our sight, our hearing, our smell and touch. And that's related to physicality. It's related to the physical world. And we also gain information uh, and uh, uh, truths by reports, by information that is uh, reaching us. And so what we have is the, a physical input through our senses and a, uh, a non-physical input to us via reports and information that we're receiving. And then the pivotal aspect of reason then comes into play. So what we do is we amalgamate the information that we're receiving from our senses with the reports that we're receiving to interpret, to place, to receive and to act on the information. However, reason has a very direct link to the senses. There's no intermediary. You're not dependent on anything uh, uh, to gain that information. You see uh, an orange, your senses perceive that to be an orange and your reason uh, interprets and acts on the fact that that is an orange that's to be eaten. However, there is an indirect relationship between reason and reports. Uh, we are dependent on the intermediaries or the, uh, the medium by which those uh, reports reach us. And so reason has to, in a, in a generic sense, has to work a bit harder to, to uh, receive, to interpret, to decide how to act on that information and ultimately to establish whether it's a truth or not. And that is the generic epistemological framework that underpins the Hadith sciences. That the a scholar of Hadith is trying always to look at Hadith and uh, see patterns and uh, the nature of Hadith and how it's reported and use interpretative uh, skeletons to understand and try and establish that is this a truth? I, how probable is it that this is from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? What is that probability? We're not uh, seeking an absolute answer, but where which is humanly impossible, but the scholars of Hadith have, uh, through uh, human endeavour, come up with a, a pretty robust uh, mechanism to try and establish that ultimate truth. I, what is the normative practice of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and therefore what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from me. And that is generally how we can view the hadith sciences uh, and the hadith as a subject, as, as, a, as a holistic kind of overview and understanding of it from a, from a kind of uh, epistemological perspective. And so we always uh, approach hadith 
with a healthy air of skepticism. Uh, what we try and do is uh, try and look at the hadith that has come to us. Is it a singular report? Is it? Is it? Has it got many chains? Who's narrating it? And what's the import? What's the subject matter? How can it be used? And so it's a very holistic science, but um, uh, one that is sprinkled with a healthy dose of scepticism, especially when it comes to the process of uh, trying to authenticate uh, the hadith. Uh, what we try and do is try and work out what the probability is that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, actually said this or did this or approved of this. And in future episodes, we'll explore that uh, a bit further. So in summary, what we've really discussed today is a philosophical kind of uh, framework, uh, usually uh, deemed uh, the epistemological approach to try and understand how is it that we as humans gain knowledge and how that in particular uh, applies to hadith uh, and the central role of reason within that process. It's worth mentioning that in the science of hadith, ilm al-hadith, we have two uh, very distinct concepts. Um, and that is the uh, concept of a riwaya and diraya. Now, riwaya is uh, the science of hadith with respect to transmission, so uh, the narration of hadith, whereas diraya is the branch of the science of hadith that is uh, with respect to comprehension uh, of the hadith, trying to understand the hadith. So Hadith and uh, hadith, uh, the science of hadith really can be approached in two ways. One is riwayatul uh, hadith, uh, modes of transmission, examining chains of narrations and the narrators themselves and the books of, of, of hadith. And the concept of dirayatul hadith, which is a uh, comprehension of what is the import of hadith so what rulings can be derived from the hadith uh, what virtues can be uh, derived from it and how can we act on the hadith and therefore this is how the uh, science of hadith uh, in particular through the methodology of diraya is closely linked and therefore uh, is the foundational aspect of uh, uh, jurisprudence and, and fiqh. So it's really important to remember that when you look at the science of hadith holistically, really we're looking at riwayat al-hadith and dirayat al-hadith. Uh, and that's an important distinction to make when looking at uh, the science as a whole. So what we've established is that the Sunnah is uh, uh, authoritative and has legislative weight and that the the phenomenon of rejecting the Sunnah is relatively uh, new in the last 100 to 150 years or so. 
Um, and the difference between the groups uh, historically has been on how uh, one interprets the Sunnah and how one gets to the Sunnah. So in Ahlul Sunnah, the Hadith play a vital role in uh, understanding the Sunnah. Uh, what I want you to do now is just step up, step back a bit and think about how information reaches you and what you do with that information. Uh, and then I'll kind of contextualize it towards the end. So when information comes to you about something, um, you listen to that information, you receive it. There's been a process by which it has has reached you there's a, a a bearer of that news and you then interpret that information and then make a conscious or sometimes unconscious decision about whether or not you're going to accept that news uh, and so what happens is that sometimes there are so many uh, people or sources of that information, whether it be historical, written, or uh, a verbal process, that it becomes illogical to deny that event or that piece of information. So let me give you an example, and one that's often cited by many, many people in, in trying to explain this concept. So we, we know that China exists. And that information has reached you through many conscious and many, uh, many conscious or unconscious routes, through word of mouth, text, uh, uh, and now social media and videos. It will be illogical and foolish for anybody to say that China does not exist. So there's been such mass transmission of that information through so many avenues and by so many people, through so many periods of time, it becomes irrefutable. You do not need to look into the veracity of those reports. And that is the concept of something being mutawatir. It's not something that is uh, the domain of the hadith sciences. It's just a concept, a, a solely theoretical principle that had its origins in, uh, for example, a rational thought and, and, and thinking. And and so, um, you know, from the Asuli uh, aspects of Islam, and especially the Mu'adazalite thought, that how do you know that something can be relied upon? And one of the mediums is this principle of that so many people are narrating the same story, that it, uh, it's inconceivable that it can be false, that they've all colluded on a lie. And so that's why uh, this concept of mutawatir is one way in which we accept information. The opposite of that is a singular report. Now, you have one report that comes uh, and it's information that's come to you. And so how likely are you to accept that information? How likely is it to be true? I from its source, so there's a there's a degree of uh, relative interpretation of the hadith. You're much more wary about that one narration, 
And so there's a process of investigation, of confirmation, of uh, corroborating that information. You're much more likely to believe it if another person comes and tells you the same or you find another source to it and you think, hmm, yeah, that, that actually might be true. And so that is the concept of Ahad, Khabar al-Wahid or Khabar al-Ahad. So on one hand, we have information which is mass transmission, which is mutawatir, and we have the concept of Ahad or singular narrations. And this is broadly how we would divide the information that is coming to us about the Sunnah of the Prophet via the medium of Hadith. I, it's it's a mutawatir concept or it's a ahad. And the vast majority of hadith are, are of the ahad uh, nature. But we never look at hadith in a, in, a, in a singular kind of fashion. We always look for corroboration. We always look at who's narrating, what are they narrating, in what context are they narrating. And so therefore, the, the khabar al-ahad is something that has to be uh, looked at and Imam Shafi uh, in his uh, Risala he he talks about the uncorroborated report either Khabar al-Ahad and what the stipulations uh, for its acceptance are uh, and that's where we start to see the real birth of the science of Hadith and the Mustalha and the terminologies used in Hadith and as I've mentioned Imam Shafi's Risala was really the first kind of uh, compilation that started to pen down these concepts. There were many scholars before him who did the same. And then uh, as we progress through history, we have specific uh, works on the terminologies of Hadith that appear. Uh, and, and, and for example, one of the most famous ones uh, is uh, uh, Imam Ramhum Humazi's work, Muhaddith uh, al-Fasil. And then that uh, carries on uh, a series of works uh, that accumulates with uh, the Muqaddimah ibn Salah and then uh, the Nukhwat al-Fiqr. And in the opening of Nukhwat al-Fiqr by Imam al-Hajr al-Asqalani, he, he kind of talks about the uh, development of the science of Hadith and also touches upon this concept of Mutawatir Hadith and Khabar al-Ahad, and how it gives us information. So he's setting a background to this. So coming back to the Khabar al-Ahad, as I've mentioned, the vast majority of hadith are in this kind of concept, that they're kind of singular reports or uncorroborated reports. And it's the job of the of the muhaddith to bolster those hadith and look into them, who's narrated them, in what context, is the chain of narration correct etc etc and like i've mentioned imam shafi talks about this in quite a lot of detail in his risala so imam shafi therefore it really refutes the concept of we will only follow mass transmission reports i mutawatir hadith he accepts khabar al-ahad and as evidence and he also cites proofs about how khabar al had uh, uh, serves as evidence uh, from a legislative point of view in accepting that narration to be representative of the Sunnah in his uh, Risala. 
However, if you look at, uh, for example, Imam Malik, Imam Malik has a much more nuanced view about this. So he will accept the Khabar al-Ahad, he will accept the, the narration. However, he views the Sunnah from a different lens. Uh, and that's why it goes back to no one rejected the sunnah. It was always about how to interpret the sunnah, how to contextualize it. Uh, and so Imam Malik, he would give legislative weight to the amal of the people of Medina. And Imam Malik was born 93 Hijri. So he was very close to the time of the Tabi'een and the Sahaba. So if a, a, a narration came to him, and it was a khabr al-wahid, a singular report. Even though it might be sahih, I, all those uh, uh, kind of investigative uh, standards I've met, for example, the who was the narrator, the standard of the narrator, is, 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 is everybody upright? As Imam Shafi uh, alludes, what was the strength of their memory? Even if all those criteria are met, if the amal of the people of Medina was different to the content of that hadith. He would prefer the uh, amal of the people of Mah of Medina, even if the hadith is sahih. So that's a very interesting viewpoint. And Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, we have to understand, he also had a very nuanced view with looking at Khabr al-Wahid. Uh, he lived in Kufa. Now Kufa was a, a hotbed of sectarianism, many different groups. The environment was very different from the the kind of utopian environment of Medina Talmanawara, the city of the Prophet So Imam Abu Hanifa had a very nuanced view at looking at the Khabr al-Ahad, then the narrations that were coming to him. So what he would do was look at the hadith, and epistemologically, I kind of looking at a, a concept, I a, a kind of paradigm. Would this hadith, this solitary narration, was it in conformity with the principles in the Quran or was it against? So the Quran was the the yardstick for Imam Abu Hanifa. If the Khabar al-Ahad seemed to be contradictory to the Quran, it, was, it wasn't accepted. Also what Imam Abu Hanifa would do, would look at the Khabar al-Ahad and consider it as, a, uh, as part of a bigger picture. He would look at other hadith and look at what the concepts in those other hadith were and the uh, collated reports and then consider that does this Khabar al-Ahad fit in conformity with those hadith or not. And so he was very, very careful about the uh, uh, singular Khabar al-Ahad reports that came to him. What is Imam Shafi and Imam Ahmed? Uh, uh, they had a position where the Khabar al-Ahad uh, was a source of evidence, uh, and they cite, like I've mentioned in Imam Shafi's Risala, he mentions the evidence, for example, of uh, the the change of the Qibla and how the information was rel relayed uh, by a, a solitary person. And therefore, the, the, the jama'at that was occurring at the time of Asr, it changed its direction. That was based on a, based on information from a single person, a khabra wahid. 
another evidence he cites is the Messenger of Allah sent a single person to Heracles, to the, the Kisra of Persia, uh, uh, calling them to Islam. Uh, and so uh, what we have to understand is that in light of this, in light of what the Hadith scholars were trying to achieve, we seem to now have a, a good foundation to understanding the terminologies and the evolution of the Hadith sciences because its premise was was trying to get to what was the normative practice of the Prophet ﷺ. What was the Sunnah? And so they developed very sophisticated uh, uh, apparatuses and terminology in trying to elucidate that fact. It's important to uh, understand when looking at the science of Hadith and in particular the history of Hadith that there's a difference between the concepts of documentation of Hadith and compilation of Hadith. So one of the uh, arguments in uh, Western academic circles is that uh, the Hadith were written down uh, nearly two centuries after the Prophet Wasallam's demise. However, um, the counter-argument to this is that there needs to be an understanding between the difference between documentation and compilation. So during the lifetime of the Prophet Wasallam, we had documentation of Hadith. We had companion, companions who uh, wrote down uh, the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and we'll deal with this uh, much more in future podcasts, uh, in particular those that pertain to the history of uh, hadith collection. So we have early documentation of hadith. The phase that occurs after this documentation phase is the compilation phase. Uh, and this is the phase where a phase where hadith are being comprised and collected in a book form, uh, and this really started started at the end of the uh, or well the beginning of the second century uh, under an edict uh, issued by uh, Umar Abdul Aziz, uh, and so the phase of compilation had started, and the resultant effect of that is. Uh, many famous books of hadith were collected, uh, some of them which you might be familiar with, like uh, the Sahihain of Bukhari and Muslim, and other books of the Qutb al-Sitta. And the phase that occurs after this compilation phase is an interpretive phase, where commentaries start to be written upon these works, uh, further uh, uh, derivative works are, are, are penned based on these uh, main primary sources. So the most important thing to remember holistically is that we have uh, an early phase of documentation of hadith that starts in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. Then we move to a phase in towards the uh, end of the first, beginning of the second century of a compilation and an authorship phase. And then the third phase is where uh, we have an interpretive phase, a uh, phase of commentary and explanations. 
So when we look at uh, the history of hadith, these three phases are, are important just to bear in mind. What we want to discuss today is the actual sunnah and uh, its understanding from a historical perspective. Uh, what we have to try and understand is that the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, as I mentioned before, are uh, important historical pieces of data. They're parts of a jigsaw puzzle uh, that allow us to try and reach the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah. What was the normative practice of the Prophet And what we see historically uh, in Islam is that no group in 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 the in the fold of Islam has rejected the Sunnah. Um, so, from a historical perspective, what we have is uh, in the early phases of Islam, uh, many groups, for example, the Mu'tazilites, the Khawarij, the uh, Shia, the Ibadis, and the Ahlul Hadith, i Ahlul Sunnah. And what you find is that none of these groups, uh, in reality, rejected the Sunnah. They didn't argue with regards to the importance of following it, uh, the importance of establishing the Sunnah, and its legislative weight. That it was an important and integral part of Islam to follow the Messenger of Allah. And so... With the Qur'an, the Sunnah was important, not only uh, in terms of establishing a, uh, a Sharia or a law uh, that was universally uh, accepted and applied, but also on a, on a personal level, with personal practice and amal. The Sunnah was the key. It was the key to understanding the Qur'an and ultimately what Allah and his messenger desired from us. So, as I've mentioned, there was no rejection of the sunnah. Where the differences started to occur was on a theoretical basis. And what I mean by that is that you have uh, the Mu'atazalites and the Ahlul sunnah uh, and even the, the Khwarij, they had a different interpretation of what the Sunnah actually constituted and how it was to be interpreted and what represented it. So from the mainstream view of the Ahl Sunnah, we say that the Ahadith of the Prophet are representative of his, of his practice, of his normative practice. And we use the Ahadith to try and find out that normative practice. However, even in mainstream uh, Sunni uh, thought, we have uh, variations of that understanding and that application of hadith and the interpretation. But what we do all agree on is that the sunnah is to be followed. The Quran only concept and rejection of the sunnah is a, is a modern phenomenon. Uh, you could say it started in the late uh, 19th century um, and <clears throat> its origins were really in two main loci. One was uh, in India uh, and uh, uh, another uh, 
uh, focus or loci was in Egypt with the uh, uh, the thoughts of uh, Rida and, and, and Siddiqui and uh, Muhammad Abdul Raya, uh, which we'll come to uh, later on. But in mainstream uh, Sunni thought, uh, the the Sunnah has legislative power and it has weight. <clears throat> and one of the first people to really start to formulate the hujjah of the Sunnah was Imam Shafi. Many scholars before him had written on the importance of uh, the Sunnah and the Hadith, but the first real compilation, as it were, was Imam Shafi's Risala. And Imam Shafi in his Risala, he um, places great emphasis on actual the authoritative nature of the Sunnah. And he also discusses an interesting uh, concept with regards to uh, the uh, concept of singular uh, narrations and <clears throat> whether one is obliged to act on them. And so this is where we start to get into uh, a bit more of a deep dive. So with regards to narrations that we have, I, the hadith that we have, there are two main main kind of concepts. Um, and one of them is a concept of uh, lots and lots of reports on uh, uh, for, a, for a topic. There, there, there's, there's a lot of information about a singular event or uh, a concept. And so that kind of is called mutawatir. And the, the, the opposite, the antonym of that is a khabar al-ahad, a, a solitary report. And what we want to discuss next is the importance of these two terms, I mutawatir versus khabar al-ahad, I mass transmission of information and uh, a solitary report. And just step back a bit from um, the theological or the uh, theoretical basis to try and understand these concepts from, from, a, from a kind of logical viewpoint to try and understand how the scholars viewed these terms and their origins. Hello. So we've uh, discussed in uh, previous episodes the, the fact that uh, in Islamic history and uh, Islamic academic thought, there's never really been um, a, um, a group or uh, an academic calling or scholarly discourse that rejects the Sunnah, uh, which we know is by and large represented by the Hadith corpus that we have. Um, in, in the classical period of Islam, uh, you could argue that there were groups such as the Mu'tazilites who were very uh, uh, rooted in reason and rationality, uh, as well as well as other groups. Uh, they 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 never called to a total rejection of the Sunnah. What they really uh, were uh, calling to uh, was an understanding of uh, how the Sunnah was to be interpreted questioning its reliability and its documentation rather than questioning its authoritative nature. However, uh, a modern phenomenon has been uh, 
you know, uh, academic thought of people who actually reject hadith. And this really has uh, what I call two loci. Uh, one was in the Indian subcon uh, subcontinent in the early early 18th to 19th century, uh, starting with Sayyid Ahmad Khan and individuals like Chirag Ali and Abdullah Chakrawali, who died in 1914, and up to Ghulam Ahmad Parwez, who died in 1986. And when you look at their, uh, their, their reasoning, what you kind of almost feel is a, a tangible uh, expression of uh, being apologetic uh, and trying to bring Islam and Islamic thought into uh, a modern uh, uh, or uh, a post-modernity uh, framework. And so they would uh, rely heavily on reason, rationality, scientism, and uh, reject uh, the hadith on this then spawned into the Quran-only movement. Uh, and so we have a, a, a loci in uh, the Indian subcontinent, as I mentioned, and the other one was uh, Arab-centric, which was really focused in Egypt, uh, really focused about uh, focus with regards to the thoughts of Muhammad Abdu and uh, Mahmoud Abu Raya and the uh, publication Mujallat al-Manar. And Again, there was a movement in terms of questioning the authoritative nature of the, the Sunnah. And what spawned from that was many other works uh, that came from the mainstream that rejected these ideas and protected uh, the narrators of Hadith uh, and uh, the Sahaba. And what you found was uh, individuals like uh, Mahmoud Abu Raya, uh, uh, they did uh, attack uh, companions like Abu Huraira. And so really we have uh, this modern phenomenon uh, of the Ahlul Qur'an, uh, uh, just saying that we can suffice with the Qur'an, whereas the mainstream thought is really that the Qur'an needs to be interpreted through the lens uh, and through the guidance of the Prophet wasallam, through his sunnah. And therefore, the Sunnah is authoritative. However, we can have a debate about the authenticity of the Sunnah, its documentation, its history, what constitutes Sunnah, and that is obviously the science of uh, Hadith itself, and also you know its interpretive and authoritative and legislative nature, which then starts to bring us into the realm of fiqh. Um, and so what we find in recent times is a uh, nefarious move really in the Western world to now start to really attack the Hadith corpus itself. Uh, and some ayah and conjecture has been you know, uh, directed at the Sahihain and especially the, the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, which is very, very sad indeed. Uh, and so what we have to do is not only understand the arguments that are being presented uh, from uh, the Hadith rejectors, uh, but also understand the, the uh, mainstream position with regards to Hadith and the, and the books that represent the Sunnah of the Prophet which has 
Now, in reality, being crystallized into the Qutb al-Sitta, uh, Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawud, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and Nasa'i, which, inshallah, we will talk about in future episodes. So, in the last episode, we, we spoke about the history of uh, uh, the Sunnah in terms of those people who uh, reject it uh, and call for uh, an adherence to the Qur'an only. Uh, we explained that the Qur'an has to be uh, looked at, has to be interpreted through the lens of the Sunnah. And I just wanted to uh, just elaborate on that. So when we come to the sciences of, say, the Qur'an and tafsir in particular, the way that the Qur'an is interpreted, is rev- reviewed, is understood, uh, as I've mentioned, is through the lens of the sunnah. So I just wanted to thrash that out a bit more. So when we look at the Qur'an, when we try and interpret the Qur'an, one level of interpretation of the Qur'an is via the Qur'an itself. What we find is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may mention something in some verses, but the explanation of that comes uh, in the Qur'an itself, uh, maybe a few verses after, the next verse, uh, or you know, in another surah. So the Qur'an explains itself. However, the second level of explanation of the Qur'an is through the sunnah, through the ahadith which are representative of the sunnah. So we use the hadith from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to ex- understand the Qur'an. That means his, his sayings, his actions and his tacit approvals. Okay. But we also use the uh, aqwal of the Sahaba, the understanding of the Sahaba, to also understand the Qur'an. And the third level is that we use the uh, understanding, the interpretation and the views of the tabi'een, especially the kibair tabi'een, the senior tabi'een, to also understand the Qur'an. So all of these three, I the Messenger of Allah وسلم, the Sahaba and the Tabi'een are all used and fall under the umbrella of Sunnah to understand the Qur'an. And what I would call the third level of understanding the Qur'an is the sciences that are associated with understanding the language itself. So understanding sciences of Nahwa, Sarf, Balagha, you know, Nahwa dealing with the syntax of the language and self dealing with verbs and uh, prose and rhetoric, which is Balagha, and also other sciences such as Ishtiaq, you know, uh, where words are derived from, an understanding of pre Arabian, what we call Jahali poetry is very important. And the last level is what we call Ra'i, you know, you know uh, a view, an opinion of the scholarly elite not of you know any 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 person or your own opinion you know we we rely on authority and scholarly uh, opinions and that uh, then leads us nicely onto the great uh, what i call the mother books of tafsir and tafasir which are really important so it's really important to understand the primary sources of islam and how they are interrelated the quran and the sunnah are inextricably linked 
and we need both to understand each other as well as understanding the context of the Quran and the Ahadith will go a long way to improving our understanding of these primary sources, inshallah.